brought to you by Penguin. Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast, where we talk to writers about writing. I'm Izzy Sutty and today I'm going to be talking to Isabella Hamad, the award-winning British-Palestinian author of the critically acclaimed The Parisian. Isabella's latest novel, Enter Ghost, tells the story of Sonia, an actor who returns to her ancestral homeland of Palestine after years of living away in London. It's been described by The Guardian as Hamlet in Palestine and it's also been called a timely, thoughtful and passionate story of the connection to be found in family and shared resistance. Isabella, it's lovely to have you here today. Welcome to the Penguin Podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Um, I've just finished your book and I cried um, and I laughed at lots of points as well. And I also went back and reread lots of your beautiful metaphors, especially about the relationship between the main character, Sonia, and her sister and her relationship to family. And I loved this book. I drank it in. I think it's a book to be really savoured and probably reread. I found it really moving and also really funny and human. And the intricacies of the relationships between Sonia and various characters, especially, as I say, her sister, Hanine, and um, the director of Hamlet, Mariam, who she becomes closer and closer to as the novel goes on, made me think of my relationship with my own sister and lots of my friends. And I've got a friend called Mariuta from Slovenia, who I found really similar to Mariam in that she is quite blunt and always says what she thinks. And I think she taught me that it's okay to feel angry and that I don't have to joke myself out of every situation. And I wondered if you thought there was a lesson that Mariam teaches Sonia in the book. That's such an interesting question. First of all, thank you so much. I'm so pleased to hear that it spoke to you in that way. I think that Sonia is really attracted to Mariam because Mariam knows what she's doing. So when we meet Sonia at the beginning of the novel, she's a bit of a mess. She's a bit lost. She feels her career hasn't gone very well as an actor in London. She's disappointed and a bit sort of focused on herself. And Mariam has a has a sense of mission and she's very charismatic. And yes, she's blunt and she's a bit, she's not a perfect person, but um, Sonia's really drawn to that. And I think she does draw certain kinds of political lessons from that about being focused on on something that's larger than than you. And I suppose, yeah, you could say that's about channeling anger to some degree, sure. But I think that it's also about a relationship of admiration that I wanted to explore. Because when they first meet, what I love, it's almost... It, this book is not like a rom-com, I don't want to. But when they first meet, that moment reminded me of when often two people meet in a rom-com and they hate each other initially. <laughs> because when um, Sonia initially sees Mariam, and I know they've spent summers together when they were children, but she can't really remember that well. So essentially it's a, felt like a first meeting. Mariam kind of annoys her, yet Sonia really wants to be with her. And I loved that, the kind of push and pull within their relationship that was there from the beginning. <laughs> Yeah, I think kind of I'm interested when you have kind of intense relationships, feelings of ambivalence or push and pull, how kind of hate and love are close to each other. There's obviously some kind of spark between the two of them. And Sonia likes her attention even while Mariam is annoying her. So definitely that was something I was playing with, kind of meet cute in a way. You write about acting in a way that... So you told me things about acting in the theatre that I knew to be true, but you put them more succinctly than I ever could have done. Yet as far as I know... I've Googled it and I've Googled your name with actor next to it and all I find is things about the book. I mean, how can you write so incredibly about not just the process of auditioning and how that makes people feel, but 
the fragility of actors' relationship to their profession and why they feel drawn to performing. I just, I found it mind-blowing how you harnessed that passion that actors have without, as far as I know, having done it yourself, at least sort of for a period of time. I mean, I was in a couple of plays at university, so I had the experience of being on a stage, which sort of isn't, you know, I feel that's part of it. I think that, to be honest, a lot of it's instinctual. A lot of it is just imaginatively exploring the subject. A lot of it's talking to actors and people who work in the performance arts. We're also very familiar with acting as an art form. We're very familiar with actors on screen. So I think that there's a way in which it's an approachable art form for, for all of us to imagine. And I also think that working in different art forms is somehow transferable. Sometimes I think of writing like painting. Sometimes I think of writing like acting. When you take on different characters and you try and imagine what they're like, it's actually quite similar process, I imagine, to what being an actor is like. Yeah, I think you're right. I, I wondered if that was the case because there's a bit near the beginning you're talking about how... It's when, to Sonia, as you say, when she arrives, she's in a bit of a mess. She's come off the back of a bad relationship, I guess, with a director called Harold, who I hated from the beginning and was like, leave Harold in London, don't go back to him. She writes about how on the last night of the play she was doing with Harold, which is just finished, she goes home, she doesn't stay at the pub. And there's something about the, the silence as the applause dies away, which is... So right. And I remember finishing plays and there being this silence in my head and just going, oh, OK, it's done. It's such a big feeling. And I wondered if that was a bit like writing. You feel like you know the characters inside out. You kind of spend that intense time with them. And then once the book's done, you is there that same feeling, that feeling of loss I think so. But then also characters sort of continue to live on because you've made them up. <laughs> yeah. So I don't really feel like I lost my characters. But I do think the feeling of ending an artwork is a very particular kind of, not grief exactly, but it's a, it's, a, it's like a life change. It's quite profound. Yeah. Yeah. It's like it peaks and mm. you're you're in it and then you know it has to end. That's part of the, the cruelty and the beauty of it in a way, isn't it? A bit like relationships, which you capture so beautifully in the book. I felt like I found Sonia a very reliable narrator. I found her a really tender person, a really kind person. And I know she's far from perfect like we all are, but I found her kindness towards others really moving. And I found that even if it was like a stranger she passed in the street or someone who didn't really have much to do with her life, that she often saw vulnerability within them or noticed something small about them that revealed something human about them or something sad or at least some sort of space within them. Do you find tenderness and kindness something that you value in friends? Oh, definitely. Yeah, and value in humans in general. I mean, it's interesting to me that you consider Sonia a kind character because I actually, when we meet her, I think of her as somebody who's quite, she's having trouble in her relationships with everybody, with her family members, with men in general. And over the course of the book, we see her becoming more natural in a way, more naturally part of a group, more naturally part of sort of a community of other people in a way. So her kindness develops and part of that has to do with her relationships with her sister, but also with the with the other members of the cast, particularly the young man playing Hamlet. So I'm, I'm happy that you saw her as kind early on. She has that in her, but she's complicated and she's got a lot of baggage. Yeah. But certainly, yeah, of course, I, I value kindness kindness and humanity. I really did find her kind from early on, but I wonder if it's because she reminded me of myself when I was younger as well, mm. like that. I think it's also the relationship between her and her sister. She arrives at her sister's really early on, just the small moments between them, even eating and making coffee and 
what they do when the ennui sets in. And I just, perhaps it really kind of sang to me, but from early on, I saw that maybe that capacity for tenderness and and her vulnerability, mm. which then, as you say, she grows throughout the book and she becomes, I suppose, more herself. She was always capable of that, but it has to be realised by circumstance and people. It's such a strong theme of resistance. There are so many themes in it, and I'm sure different people will get different things from it. But I felt like there's a resistance initially, as you say, from her to perhaps be open-hearted and to experience things fully because she's coming in a kind of a stance of, of defensiveness, perhaps. Also resistance politically, resistance initially to being in the play when she, you know, she ends up doing Hamlet in the West Bank. When you started writing it, did Sonia come to you as a protagonist first or did you think it would be really cool to write this story about a group of people putting on Hamlet in the West Bank or did it kind of all come at once the the idea for the play started first so I had been already kind of thinking about from a while ago I'd been interested in theatre in Palestine sort of started when I saw this film called Arna's Children by a theatre practitioner called Juliana Merchamis it's about his mother who established a theatre school for children in Janine refugee camp and he subsequently turned that into a theatre called the Freedom Theatre so, and I was interested I mean, in the history of the Freedom Theatre and in theatre in general in Palestine and what writing a novel about theatre might make available to me formally uh, in terms of metaphor and looking at structures of political power in resistance and the spectacle of resistance and so forth. Lots of sort of things might be available to play with in the writing the novel. So that was what came initially. And then Sonia, I, it took me a while to meet her, as it were, to kind of get to know her. And initially I wrote the book in third person. And when I switched it to first person, I started, something clicked. I suddenly kind of, she suddenly started to take shape. And then I went from there. When it was in third person, was it still as much to do with her or was there more stuff about the other characters? No, it was still, Sonia was still the protagonist, but I couldn't, she was sort of hard to access for me. And going into first, that's why I, in, I think of writing the novel almost like acting in this way. That, and I didn't have that much experience in writing in first person. So it was, was like having to adopt the role of Sonia and kind of shave off then what was too harsh or too unlikable and sort of humanise other elements. And she sort of became more three-dimensional in the process of that. Maybe that's why I found her so open and tender from the beginning in a kind of small way. And as you say, it grows bigger because it's in first person. So there's a lot about what she's thinking. There's a lot about what she sees. And there's a lot about what she's experiencing physical and how that differs from what she's experiencing emotionally. And I can see how that's much purer mm. in, in the first person because it's, it's like you've got a right then to really hear the depth of those thoughts. Totally. And also because it's such a, you know, it's a psychological novel in lots of ways. And I'm really interested in that place where the political and the psychological meet. So first person enables that in a certain way, definitely. Have you seen much theatre in Palestine? Yeah, I've seen some, yeah. And I've spoken also to many of the old guard who were in theatre in the 70s and the kind of like heyday of Palestinian theatre as well. But yeah, I have seen some Palestinian plays. And did you go specifically to research the book or did you just draw on that experience? I think I'd already seen some plays and then I asked to speak to people to try and pick their brains. I began trying to do research the way I had done research for my first novel and I quickly realised that it didn't really require that level of research in the same way and that I could play and, you know, be imaginative. So it didn't really require sort of scholarly work in that way. 
I mean, in general, I think talking to people that are trying to listen to their experiences and ways of seeing the world is very useful for a novelist because, you know, you're you're populating a novel with characters of different experiences and worldviews. That's so true. Even if it's something about the way they speak, you might not use any of the material they give you, but it mm. all goes into the cauldron, doesn't it? And you kind of might recall something that they did a year later or there's such a big sense of play throughout the book. I think especially as they come into rehearsal, I absolutely love the relationship between all the cast and I love how Mariam kind of changes her, I suppose, her status within the group. She's initially the director and you feel her open up a bit and her become more vulnerable as you meet her child, you hear more about her her marriage, which has broken up, and she lets Sonia in a bit. I just loved the world of the play, the world of rehearsal and how much fun they had and also the gaps in it, how they did certain exercises that didn't quite work or that did. I thought it was just very realistic. And there was a real sense of joy at certain moments when they were creating something. It just really harnessed well, what the rehearsal process should be and often isn't. You talk about the sea quite a lot and I'm really interested in this. So I don't really... I say that I don't like the sea, but I say that's kind of royal people. I do, I do like the sea, but I don't ever feel this special need to visit the sea. There's quite a lot about the sea and there's a fair bit about drowning as well. There was this theme to me of the sea being this presence in the book, even though it's not mentioned quite as much later on once we get more into the West Bank. But Sonia talks about seeing the sea and it kind of being too big almost to take in and she wants to focus on the pebbles and the smaller picture. And I often feel like that with the sea, not because it feels too big to take in because of its majesty, but because I find it, I think, a bit boring to look at. As a... <laughs> that sounds awful. <laughs> anyway, what I want to know is, how do you feel about the sea? That's such an interesting question. I mean, like, I think that that like, uh, recurrence of sea imagery, probably, you know, as with many things with writing novels, not totally conscious, but obviously it's significant for Palestinians in the West Bank where they're landlocked, you know, and it's, it's something special to get a permit from the Israeli authorities to be able to go into that territory and go and see the sea in Haifa or Yaffa or one of these Palestinian cities. For me, I love the sea. I definitely feel feel at home close to the sea. And that metaphor that I was pushing there with Sonia finding it difficult to take in the sea has to do with Sonia's, not quite myopia, but her, the difficulty she has in, in addressing Palestine as, a, as, as an issue of magnitude. So the two sisters have these very different responses to their experiences as young people in Palestine. One sister, Hanin, becomes you know, more politically committed in her own way and she teaches there and so on. And Sonia is kind of like, I don't want anything to do with this. She can only look at the pebbles. She can only look at small things. But So I was sort of engaging with that and her part of her admiration was for her sister and also for Mariam is that they can, they seem to be able to look at the whole thing, yes. <laughs> to look at the sea. Yes, they stare at it unblinkingly, actually. Mm. For the stories and experiences politically of their dad, especially, um, and their grandparents, are these stories that are part of your tapestry or are they stories that you might have heard when you were growing up, especially about the woman in the dress who's holding what initially is perceived to be a baby and is actually a pillow, which is such an incredibly strong image? Is that something that you grew up knowing? I hadn't grown up hearing that story, but when I was writing the novel, it came back to me as a memory. When I was about 21, I went around with a professor from Najah University in Nablus. He was interviewing people in the refugee camps around Nablus. 
and I just went along for the ride. I mean, I didn't know exactly what I was doing, but it was kind of him to let me let me listen in. And there was one elderly woman who'd been 17 at the time of the Nakba in 1948 when she became a refugee just before the establishment of, of the State of Israel. And she told this story. We were in Balata refugee camp and all her grandchildren. Obviously, it was one of these amazing things. So she was telling the story and the room began to fill with people coming to listen to her. She hadn't told the story in many years, I imagine. And she said that as she was walking, a woman next to her thought she'd had her baby and realised that she was holding a, a pillow. This really struck me and I didn't write it down or anything and it, it recurred to me because so much of the novel is about motherhood and the absence of motherhood and ambivalent relationships, ambivalent relationships with motherhood, with the role of being a mother. Sonia plays a mother, as you mentioned. There's a sort of way in which the sisters and the women in the book mother each other and that role switches. Mariam and Sonia mother each other in different ways at different points. It suddenly came back to me and I remembered it and, so I, and I put it in. Then interestingly, not that long ago, I mentioned this to someone and they said, oh yeah, I know that story. And I suddenly thought, oh, maybe it's an apocryphal story. Maybe it's a story that's gone around. That, And everybody says, you know, I saw this happen in 1948 and it had gathered over time this sort of symbolic weight, what it means to leave your child behind. There's a famous story by a Palestinian novelist called Ghassan Kanafani called Returning to Haifa, which revolves around a couple who leave their baby in Haifa and what it means to go back and try and meet the child who they left behind in 48. So there's this symbolism of leaving the child behind that that's also drawing on. In a way, I was maybe disappointed that this woman had told me an apocryphal story. But then I thought, actually, that kind of tracks, that sort of rings true, the way in which I think Palestinians sometimes do do this. You know, they will say, well, like, that's also my story. My grandmother during the Second Intifada would point at the television and say, that's me. You see a woman and say, that's me. (laughs) (laughs) Also, the woman you saw tell the story might have been, that might have been the real story and then people might have um, taken it from her. Right. It's true. That's true. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a, that's, a, that's a better way of thinking yeah. about it. Yeah. <laughs> you were there for the initial telling. Yeah. Um, well, we always ask people to bring on a few objects onto the podcast to talk to us about. I know you won't have physically brought all of these in. <laughs> that's absolutely fine. So um, the first one I'd love to talk about is somewhere that you were happy. For this one, it's not quite an object. It's a roof. Yeah. <laughs> the roof of my parents' house when I was little I would climb onto the roof and read obviously this was quite you know my parents didn't know that I was doing that did you have to climb out of a window I climbed out of the window and onto the yeah I don't know I think I liked it It was secret and private and you could sit between the eaves and had something you know obviously it had to be good weather but um, I was always reading in privacy in secret I used to climb onto the roof with my friend in exactly the same way. On the top floor, there was a small window and then we got wet. It rained once and we came in and that's how her mother found out. Oh, wow. Yeah, we were never allowed to do it again. (laughs) But I still remember that feeling. I know exactly what you mean. It's like having a secret. There's something about it being secret, isn't it? It, If you were given that space, even if you were told only you can go here, it just wouldn't be the same. Yeah. And I remember being able to look down at them, you know, in the garden or on the street and they can't see you. That sort of like childish pleasure. I think I also related it somehow in my mind. I think in the magician's nephew, the C.S. Lewis. Oh, I think they, yes. there's something to do with roofs, or they go across the roofs, or through the attics, or something. So something a little, uh, a little romantic about it too. Is it also perhaps the element of danger? Definitely, tiny, tiny rebellion. Mm, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I love it when. So there's a bit where they're on their phones. I think it's when they're rehearsing and Mariam says, when you're on your phone, a bubble forms around you. I feel exactly the same. And I think if I could, I would just, I know we'd lose a lot of stuff, but just banish the internet and phones. Um, When you're writing, do you feel that 
a bubble around you is part of you always in the world of the book, especially while it's still at that stage where you're it's kind of raw. Mm. I think there are phases where you feel like you're just in the world of the book and those are kind of magic phases and it's good to try and protect them. But inevitably life intervenes and sometimes you get disrupted and you have to leave it for a while and go back to it. It's not necessarily a bad thing. Sometimes it means you can look with fresh eyes at the text. But the thing with the phone, when she says that the bubble forms around you, it's also theatre as an art form is really about being in a room with people and kind of connecting and it's live and it's in the moment. It's like the opposite of being on your phone where you think you're communicating, but actually you're you're isolating yourself. Yeah, that's so true. I think even at meals when someone picks up a phone, it changes. So ideally a meal, I think, should be, it can be theatre. I mean, a good meal where an amazing conversation takes place is really something to cherish and that people open up in different ways when they're eating and they're sharing food, especially when someone's cooked. I think when someone picks up a phone during a meal, it changes the whole dynamic of the table. Totally. Disrupts unmediated communication between people, definitely, connection. Do you, when you're writing, have rules about looking at your phone or going online? Yeah, I have like an app on my computer that blocks the internet until 2pm. Because I find that when I'm writing, because it's kind of a dream state, then I don't have the ability to exert self-control. And that's sort of weird. Because you're kind of like in this half asleep state, um, I would prefer to just block access to the internet. Otherwise, I'll just Google or if something occurs to me, I won't have the self-control to say, oh, Google that at 2pm. Yeah, so ideally have you'd make, have access to the internet, but make a list and go at two o'clock, I'll yeah, Google exactly. all these things. But exactly. yeah, I love that. Description of it as a dreamlike state. It's like you're tapping into something ineffable, really, isn't it? When I write and I feel honoured to be in their world somehow, like they exist. <laughs> like, yeah, it does disrupt it all if you're even just Googling something very specific and going back to it, I think changes it because you've kind of gone into the world of the internet and even the act of typing into the Google search bar, I think, changes it. Totally. It disrupts your thoughts. Sometimes thoughts take a long time to reach fruition, you know. Yeah. And it, and it's a complex mental state when you're writing because you're sort of trying to harness, like, unconscious stuff, dreaming, and then also sort of controlling it. And those things are very difficult to do simultaneously. If you've got a phone there and you're disrupting it and you've got, like, notifications or this sort of colourful, I don't know, <laughs> icons, it's challenging to manage that at the same time. I think it's true. I wonder if... Some of those thoughts can be like pulling something out of the earth that feels like it's never going to emerge. And it's so different from the act of being able to type a word and immediately receive solid results. Absolutely. When you're writing about a place, so I'm thinking specifically about Hanin's house first and then Mariam's house where Sonia spends increasing amounts of time as the novel goes on because she she spends more and more time in the West Bank rehearsing and she gets to know... Mariam's house quite well. When you're writing, do you have like a floor plan of those houses? Huh. Um, yeah, kind of. Not drawn. But in my mind, I actually do know where the doors are and where the kitchen is. And that's, yeah, I do. I do. And I don't know what it's based on because they're not based on particular houses. Yeah, they're I was going to ask that if it's that if they're no, either of them are just, based. They're probably amalgamations, as as often in a, some way characters are, right? They're kind of ama- amalgamations of things that you've picked up from all over the place that go into the cauldron, as you say. But yeah, I do know how the houses are, <laughs> are designed. I think I'm quite interested in uh, the way architectural spaces structure experience anyway, and in houses. And the I way think. light falls. There's a lot about, mm. you know, like 
the way light falls on the coffee or the way light falls on the table or I can really picture that bit quite early on where Sonia goes and reads there's a kind of everyone will imagine it differently won't they but I imagined it even though you may not have worded it like this as a kind of bay window that she reads in and yeah I like the way you talk about light um, because it's often at odds with what the girls are feeling Hmm. or it somehow pours light on the silence between them and kind of exacerbates this space between them. Yeah, I also think that light, when you use light in description of space, it can illuminate space and <laughs> not a pun there, but uh, in, in a kind of, it gives a kind of concreteness and, and vividness, um, which I find very helpful for my own imaginative process. Yeah. Yeah, it's almost like putting um, a boundary around that bit, isn't it, mm. something? Or it's like a punctuation mark, a small one. Yeah, it can strengthen a moment in the same way as like a grandfather clock chiming can mm-hmm. or something. Well, it really comes through, but very subtly. That's what I mean about it being a book to be savoured. I really think it's, the metaphors in it are, are so, just so beautiful. <laughs> um, and you can't read it quickly. Not that you should ever read a book quickly, but I think it's really a book to be read slowly and to to be cherished, not to be rushed, in the same way as I don't really think any of them are rushing as characters. Mariam kind of, when things happen, like the production of Hamlet in the West Bank takes loads of turns that none of them would have predicted, both cast-wise and politically, and where they can perform it, people stopping them from doing certain things. It doesn't feel like she's hasty about she she's quite hot-headed but I feel like there's a kind of trust in the show that gives the book this beautiful pace and I really trust that there's time for exploration of each character's feelings um it doesn't feel like any of it it doesn't feel like you're rushing towards the final night it's just very beautifully paced so great (laughs) yeah well done (laughs) right let's move on to the next object this is something you should have thrown away it's funny that was a difficult question for me to answer because I'm not actually that attached to objects I think if I needed to throw away something I would have thrown it away but I do have a lot of old books and I am attached to them even if I don't read them again often because of the annotations even if they're not my annotations if they're my parents annotations or something I kind of love those books because you're reading alongside your old self you're reading alongside someone else and I really cherish them as objects, even if I don't read them again. So, yeah, I know but exactly what you mean. Books are heavy, you know, and uh, they can be a bit of a, <laughs> a dead weight sometimes, it seems. But I feel comforted to have books around me. So Yeah, and the fa- fact that they've stayed in your collection of belongings, if you do find it easy to throw things away, speaks volumes, actually, doesn't it? Because you want them. I think when books have been annotated, they become kind of keepsakes as well as books. Because as you say, you can look back I sometimes look at books that I've annotated from like 20 years ago and think, why did I think that? (laughs) Or used to write my name and address really neatly in the front and often write things about boys that I fancied or, you know, I'm going back sort of now to sort of 16, 17, I've still got novels or in the margin I'll say like, that reminds me of Tom and it is nice to look back. That's special because you also yeah. track your your own changes in the way you read something. You know, you might read a novel at one point in your life and you notice certain things and then you read it later and actually that's not what speaks to you, something else speaks to you and that's also kind of wonderful. I do think that, I think I've stopped doing this so much but I think when I was writing my first book I often would write in the back of a novel I was reading thoughts about my own book <laughs> as I was working on it so there's also this sort of like weird paper trail of my my thought process as I was as I was learning to write I guess yeah, yeah. 
and some great. shopping lists as well. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I know exactly what you mean. It's eggs, milk, bread yeah. alongside. And you never want those books to go to a charity shop or anything, no, do you? Because special. would you find the thought of people reading like a notebook of yours or say annotations about your writing difficult? Yeah, I mean, it was funny actually for the Paris Review recently, I typed up my COVID diary, which is also a kind of notebook, sort of chaotic. I keep these notebooks and I and sometimes they're diary entries, sometimes they're thoughts about my book I'm writing sometimes they're just things I'm reading or research or whatever and it was very nerve-wracking you know to type it up it estranged it made me more self-conscious continuing to write (laughs) in that notebook (laughs) because no one has ever as far as I know ever read ever read those notebooks yes it's interesting isn't it I when I used to write a diary when I was younger I think I wrote it imagining someone else would read it Mm -hmm. and I think that changes the way you write something that's supposed to be just for you or is it if you're just writing for you and then you have to show it to people? Yeah, it's a different thing. I think that I, I when I write in that in those books, that's me trying to track my own thought processes because when you're particularly for writing and as being a person changing in the world, you know, I think it's helpful to Probably track good your for thoughts. Everyone, yeah, I think it? everybody should write some thoughts down at some point. Um, it allows me when you're, you know, writing a novel takes many years, or at least the novels that I write seem to take me many years. So it's useful to have these these traces of what you're thinking about at certain points. You can refer back to them because you're not going to remember otherwise. So I find it helpful in that way. And sometimes it, you know, a diary entry or something that's dated and it's just about an experience I had that day also can be helpful for the process of writing. There's a really powerful moment with a young man who's on a hunger strike in a camp in the West Bank called Rashid. So Sonia meets him when she's a teenager in the 90s and she goes to the West Bank with her uncle, who's a doctor who's been called to try and get him to eat. I found this scene really intense. It stayed with me. Rashid becomes quite a powerful figure within the book just because of his fate and, you know, how how her sister might have known something that that Sonia didn't. Don't want to give too much away about the book because everyone must read it. But he almost becomes part of a kind of war between them in terms of who they are. When Sonia is watching this boy and her uncle's trying to give him an injection and he has this moment of connection with her that's wordless, suddenly they're just like two teenagers and it's almost like he's not smiling but a moment of warmth between them in this quite sort of horrific circumstance. When you've written a scene like that, do you feel emotionally exhausted or does it come from a slightly different place? Do you feel energised by it almost because you know that you're doing something for the good of the book? That's such an interesting question. I don't know. I think it really depends. Sometimes I think it is exhausting. The way I would say an actor finds it exhausting to play certain roles. And I think it helps the writing if you if you do feel, you know, if you can properly go into the place where you're properly emotionally engaged in that moment, it will enhance the writing. So probably both. But also, you know, every scene gets drafted so many different times. So I have a different experience of the scene in each iteration. I spend so much time with it. At a certain point, you're reading the text and you're just seeing, does it work as a machine? You know, how is it too long there if I got to lengthen that a little bit to let that beat last a bit longer for that to come across and so on. But I think in its initial incarnation, it's really useful if you do properly feel something. <laughs> Definitely. Which bit of it do you like the most? Do you like that latter bit of writing where it is, I suppose, slightly more technical for want of a better word? Technical feels too cold, but just where you're kind of shaping it more. Or do you prefer the beginning bit? Or Do you just like, I don't know, do you kind of appreciate each stage of the process? I definitely prefer 
like as an experience the later stage where you've got a text and it's just really satisfying and it starts to work but it's not you know that's not possible unless you have that kind of you know german strong <laughs> period of of um of of like tearing your hair out and things not working and drafting things and you know suddenly coming across something which can't really be it's hard to control that it's hard to see elements of that process as productive sometimes you might have days where you're not making any progress and then something happens and you realize actually those empty days were were part of that you know it's it's hard to fit that into a kind of nine to five as it were but I like the satisfaction of just <laughs> job done at the end of the day I have to say in that initial bit where it's almost like you're having to construct clay that you're building it out of then make that into a thing do you ever just say actually it's not working today I'm going to go out go for a walk go to the cinema and I'm not going to work for the rest of the day or do you try and push through and work a certain number of hours I mean it really depends I ideally would just try and do it try and sit down and do it but I have, I've noticed that sometimes when you push it it's not wise and you need to kind of there's a reason why you're not progressing and actually you need to kind of you need some input you need to go read a novel go and watch a movie go see a friend and those things can help yeah so it's important what you do that you have an input from an outside source almost rather than say going for a walk and not talking to anyone do you Mm. think it's better to actually have an active activity for me it releases something when I read novels you go into that you're you're relaxing some of those highly conscious mental states and you get to dream a bit and you could feel something can click you know because it's always working underneath well let's move on to the next object and this is a song that moves you Oh, yeah. So I chose, what's it called, the title? It's called uh, Today um, I Am a Boy, right? Yeah. So that's um, Anoni when Anoni was with Anthony and the Johnsons. I love that song. I mean, I love all of Anoni's music, partly because how direct she speaks. There's something that you could do in music where you could say something really directly and then combination with the with the beat and the music, it sort of goes straight to the heart. And there's something about that song. The lyrics are, you know, one day I'll grow up and be a beautiful woman. One day I'll grow up and be a beautiful girl. But for today, I am a boy. Today, I'm a child. And it's very moving. I, I saw them perform in London many years ago with a friend of mine. And we, <laughs> when this song was played, we kind of just like cried our eyes out. It was really extraordinary. And she was there in this ball gown. And, and then she did become a beautiful woman. So it's sort of stunning. Yeah, I think that's a, a, an amazing song. I love Anthony and the Johnsons. And I do remember this song. I feel like the music they make is... It's almost too much for me to bear at times. There's something quite melancholy about it, but I do feel this almost physical reaction to it. It actually reminded me, there's a bit quite near the end where Sonia and her sister are walking in an olive grove. I feel like the relationship between them then are becoming more and more honest with each other about their feelings in the past and their reasons for doing things. And Sonia says she feels something different from emotion. She says it's a powerful internal movement like seasickness. Do you feel that from music? Well, I think that music can really get directly... This is like an old model, isn't it, of kind of the way music can get straight to the emotions without form, you know, without words, without form. It, It does something to you. I think that, you know, in prose, it's like discursive. It's dealing with ideas and forms and characters, but sometimes you can also access that thing that kind of goes straight to the gut. And balancing those two is part of the challenge of narrative art. To access some of that musical power, I think, is uh, it's definitely something to aspire for. I certainly am moved by music. I think, it, you know, you're feeling a bit dry. Go and listen to some, you know, Maria Callas or something. Yeah. And unlock some emotion. Yeah, it's true. I think that's why 
it should be used sparingly in TV because actually you can manip- <laughs> you can totally. cover up less than great work by just shoving totally. music on top of it. Yeah, like emotionally coercive violin music in Hollywood <laughs> movies with a yeah. with a standing ovation in an airport. Yeah, definitely. and then sometimes I feel myself start to cry, and I'm like, no, no. don't really annoy me <laughs> myself. It's a Pavlovian response to strings. There's this brilliant moment where there's a conversation about whether art, um, namely theatre in this circumstance, kind of blunts the edges of suffering by giving the audience something they see in themselves. The upshot of that is that although they have this shared moment, less progress is made in real life. Wanting a specific thing or a political situation, that it perhaps kind of softens them a bit because it makes them feel part of something. I wondered how whether you mm. agree with that. I mean, that I was sort of staging a debate in a way, which I... I'm not totally cynical about the role of art, but I have, you know, reservations about, I think often artists like to big up their potential political efficacy. And I have concerns that at this point in history, there are stronger forces at play that will not be swayed by a beautiful film that shows you the suffering of a people, for example. Not to say that such a film isn't part of a a movement of getting a message across and sort of enlightening a public about a particular issue, but I think that we have to be realistic about the the roles that these things play. In this dialogue, Mariam is suggesting out of a place of fear, because she really wants her play to play this role, you know, that theatre maybe did in the 70s in Palestine, in having a kind of an encouraging function on the audience to feel bound together as a people and to resist their oppression. But she's worried that the catharsis that an audience feels watching a play is soothing, and that in fact they feel satisfied by that soothing a feeling and therefore they will not take to the streets and fight. This is a sort of, it's a kind of, maybe it's a false dichotomy in a way, but that's the fear that she's articulating in that moment. And Sonia's like, that's, in a way, that's also overstating the role of theatre. <laughs> yeah, that's what's really, yeah. that's just the lovely moment as well. I love those moments of, of humour that come about. Well, let's move on to your next object and it's something that reminds you of home. <laughs> This is my notebook. Yes. <laughs> so I'm always on the move. I mean, I I sort of not sure. I feel at home on the move. I think that sounds funny. So yeah, if I can have my writing implements to hand, then I feel comfortable, I, I suppose. Why do you think it is that you like to move? Around? I've got no idea. I mean, it was funny because during COVID, it was the first time in many years that I had to be in one place for seven months. And, you know, I survived and actually it was great. And, but, uh, but it was a kind of, it was really interesting for that reason that I wasn't roaming around. So, but I don't have an answer. I probably need to be psychoanalyzed, I think. Well, if it works, it doesn't matter, does right. it? Right. When you grew up, did you move around a lot? No, not really. I grew up in London. I mean, we didn't really go around that much. So I'm not sure where it came from. <laughs> so as well as your notebooks, when you get somewhere, is there like one pitch that you put up or is there a certain thing that you put on the mantelpiece? Or is it just, it's just you? I wish I had some ritual like that, but not really, no. I think it's great. I mean, I live with a hoarder and I'd rather (laughs) have your life. (laughs) Um, Have you ever lost a notebook? Oh, no, but the thought of losing one would fill me with a great sense of panic, Mm. I must say. Yeah, so they're very precious, even though they're all beaten up, yeah. I was really interested in Sonia's reaction when she first goes to her grandparents' old house, which has been sold, but she hasn't been told it's been sold. This is one of 
the instances in which it's so lovely to be with her all the time and to hear her thoughts because she's kind of preparing herself for this great emotion. I think she compares it to going into a church and expecting to be filled with awe. Then she says, I think she says, I just felt a kind of exhausted despair. And I thought it harnessed so beautifully those moments that you expect to be big, I suppose, that are intertwined with nostalgia and what we should feel, especially in relation to family. Perhaps even how we feel about the death of a family member where you think, I know what I should feel and I can almost touch that feeling, but it's not here. And then she goes back to revisit the house at a later time. It's quite a different atmosphere then. How do you feel about houses? Would you feel that, do you think, if you went back to a house in Palestine that, you know, that played a big part in your family's life? Well, I mean, yeah, last year I went I went back to see the Hamad house in Nablus, which I hadn't been to see in a few years, which plays quite a big role in my first novel. Uh, and I felt surprisingly emotional. I felt really emotional. It's a very beautiful house. I and mean, it was like there was like a summer school happening in there and a circus school on the top floor. And I was like, but someone's emptied all the cupboards. There were all these photos. Why didn't I take them? Oh, wow. <laughs> but, yeah. you know, but houses are very important in Palestine. You know, it's a house that has stayed in Palestinian hands in Haifa is rare and very important politically as well as to the family so the fact that this this house has then been sold is very significant so now it just occurs to me as you say that that like that occurring early in the novel and Sonia not really feeling what she's expecting to feel that, that this is a big loss a significant loss she then feels later when she's part of the demonstrations in Jerusalem which is a sign of sense of connectedness to the masses. So just, uh, in a way, they're all protesting by praying outside the mosque. And um, so they sort of rhyme together in that way, in terms of what is the nation, what is Palestine, what, is, what does it signify? There's also that writer I mentioned earlier, Hassan Kanafani, in Returning to Haifa, is also about returning to this, this house that has been left and meeting the new Israeli incumbents of their home. So there's also a kind of play on that in that scene, where the guy comes out. Where the guy comes out and says, you know, take your nostalgia elsewhere. I really wanted him to let them in and I knew that probably wouldn't happen, <laughs> but <laughs> I could really imagine. He says this is not a bar. <laughs> when you went back to the Hamad house in Palestine, did you get to go inside and see the circus school and everything? And yeah, yeah, yeah. The rooms? yeah, yeah. I mean, I'd been, I'd been in before, but I just yeah. hadn't been in a while. And they were very sweet, you know. They'd like, yeah. They're beautiful, big stained glass windows. It's a really gorgeous house. Wow. Especially as you move around so much. Do you feel like when you walk into a building that you're going to live in or spend significant time in, are you attuned to atmospheres in houses? And do you feel like really at home in some places without really knowing why? Definitely. Yeah, definitely. But I am sensitive to light, actually. Like, I think light is really important. But yeah, the shapes of rooms and all of those things I think are really important. And they're important in ways you don't necessarily realise how the space around you is affecting you. But it really does. It affects your mind. Yeah, I think that's very true. How much do you cherish time alone? A lot. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, of course, like writers spend most of their time alone in a way. At the same time, I'm actually very sociable and I also like to balance writing time alone with company. But also, in a way, I often turn writing into something sociable in the way that I engage with, you know, in what you might call research or sort of like talking to people. I feel like that's very important so that your writing doesn't become something unseasoned by other people's lives. I think it's very important to be outward facing as a writer, or at least for me anyway, to, to be engaging with the world, to be curious about the world. So I try to keep a balance there. 
how easy do you find it to let the book go? I don't mean in terms of the characters and in a kind of very literal way, um, but um, I guess what I mean is once it's done and once it's been printed, do you feel like it's no longer your work in a sense? It's, it belongs to the world and people's reactions to it almost aren't to do with you? Or do you find yourself still thinking about it and hoping that people take certain things from the book? I mean, I think at a certain point you have to let go. People will read what they want to read into into something you've written. But I do find it, because so much of novel writing, of course it's conscious and of course there's planning and plotting and lots of sort of intellectual activity that's going on. It's also very unconscious and there are things that you sense and that you feel your way through in a non-verbal way, even though it's a verbal art. And I think that that means that even for you, there are things you can discover later. Um, that's why it's quite fun to talk about it because actually by conversation, you learn things about your own book from what other people see in it. And that's actually really a nice thing about talking to readers. Yeah, and then I suppose that affects the writing that you you go on to do because you might go oh I hadn't mm. seen it like that yeah I suppose a really good book is like a conversation in that there are lots of things that you sense within a conversation and body language and I know that you can't show body language in a book you can only write about it but I think there's an inner life of a book that can't really be described that will that will really sing to people right that can't be paraphrased that resists paraphrase right yeah and that's that, what, that's when you know a book is alive yeah. And um, do you find that people do come up to you and talk? I'm sure it has. I mean, especially people from Palestine, people who've been to the West Bank. Do you find that people come up to you from the Parisian as well and talk quite passionately about their reactions to, to your work? Yeah, I found that really moving. With the first novel, it's always been really special partly because I spent so much time talking to elderly people <laughs> for that book, that it really speaks to the elderly, <laughs> to like elderly men from Nablus who have had some <laughs> amazing responses. Um, and I find that very moving and not really something I'd thought about in advance. People have, have been enthusiastic or have expressed enthusiasm to me and I, I always find that moving. And it makes you feel like you've you've spoken to somebody, you know, even though it's in this, <laughs> they're reading it far away from you. Because reading a book is such a personal thing, isn't it? You read it at your own pace and you have your own relationship with it. And it even depends. I think there are books that we read at certain times in our lives that if we read them even two years later, we'd have a completely different reaction to it. Hmm. There's something very alive about the process of reading that I think is different from watching a film or, hmm. yeah, something where I suppose it's presented to you in more of a present with a bow on top. Please, please read Isabella's book. It's just fantastic it's been so lovely to talk to you thank Brilliant. you so much for having me honest funny answers thank <laughs> you please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast to make sure you never miss an episode if you can please leave us a nice review if you're enjoying listening it helps to get the word out and helps other people to find us and finally if you want to find out more about this podcast or see who else we've spoken to go to penguin.co.uk forward slash podcasts where you'll find everyone from dolly alderton to benjamin zephaniah talking about their writing i'm izzy sutty see you next time 